0: Now he is your host,
1: Chris Cooper. Hello, this is Chris Cooper and a big welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. It's great to be back with you again for yet another week with yet another fantastic guest. Um, This is the show that helps you to elevate your thinking and to develop your leadership and uh, to basically contribute through your work to a better world. On last week's show, we had a fantastic guest. We had Mark C. Crowley. We talked about leading from the heart. Uh, Mark was uh, was fantastic uh, and really, really resonated with that show. It really links in with um, a lot of work I've been doing around energy in, in business. Um, but Mark, um, I think one thing I took away from Mark was a little quote about marinating your people and your team's in positivity and uh, positive, warm energy, and some great pointers there from his book and his thinking uh, about why the heart is so important, why it is so important to build this this force and warmth around your people and around your work, and that way, when you do that, they feel um, very um, close and aligned to you, and they want to help, and they're happy when the bar is raised even higher uh, to be a part of that um, about that that game and that opportunity. So today we're gonna to talk about great mentorship. I've got Scott Jeffrey Miller with us. And we're gonna talk about, you know, what we can learn from, uh, from great mentors. Uh, we're getting, uh, Jeffrey, Scott Jeffrey Miller is a highly sought after speaker. He's an author, he's a podcast host. He's a Wall Street Journal best-selling author, and he currently serves as Franklin Covey's senior advisor on thought leadership. Price's advisory role, Um, Scott was a 25-year Franklin Covey associate. Now, Franklin Covey, um, for me, two of my favorite books ever um, are The Speed of Trust by Stephen M. R. Covey uh, and also The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which when I worked for Mars Inc. uh, was standard issue, brilliant, um, brilliant works. Um, He served there as a Chief Marketing Officer and Executive uh, Vice President. He hosts On Leadership with Scott Miller, which is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. Um, Scott is a partner in Gray and Miller, a speaking, literary, and talent agent. Uh, And uh, we're going to today uh, explore his new book, The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship. So brilliant to see you, Scott, and uh, to welcome you to the Business Elevation Show.
2: Chris, what an honor. I'm a little concerned that that beautifully serene musical opening is a little incongruent with my kind of American go-go energy, but I'll try to match the tone today. What an honor. Thanks for shining your spotlight on me and my new book, The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship. Number six in my series of books. Uh, Appreciate your platform today.
1: Well, you very welcome. I should say that um that music was created by Owen O'Sullivan, who's been well, a again- He's a he's um a Celtic musician. He lives up in um I think he lives I don't think he was northern um USA or just into Canada. And he's an amazing, amazing um artist. Uh, he's uh, some of his work I think was in the Spielberg movie, and he's uh, just um and just, just does some uh, I'm trying to think who the who was the guy in I can Glad-
2: feel my blood pressure just lowering listening to that 30
1: second opening
2: it was awesome <laughs> who
1: was who was in the who was in the gladiator who was the main actor Marsh, or uh russell crow russell crow yeah he's in the russell crow, was in the russell crow band with wow, uh, I see. the cool guy so so scott um you've actually won the reward for the best bio that i've seen actually I, i've looked at your website and i love the way that you had lots of um you had lots of crossings out in it there was lots of uh Irony in there, and I, I I thought actually had a guest a few weeks ago who talked about um, not not um, uh not using bullshit basically in business, which was quite interesting. And I, I love the way that you uh, you did that. Uh, so I wanted to uh, sort of pat you on the back really for this fun. So do take a look at Scott's website and check out his bio because it's uh, it's quite neat. But I'm just wondering, Scott, where's home now? And uh, is there as such a thing as a typical day in the Scott Jeffrey Miller household?
2: Yes, what a great opening question. Uh, Home is Salt Lake City, Utah, here in the states, kind of the Mountain West. We hosted the Olympics, I don't know, 20 years ago and likely coming back here. So I'm originally from Orlando, Florida, worked for the Walt Disney Company, and they invited me to leave, which is kind of how they do it at Walt Disney when you're a cultural mismatch. And so we're... Does a single Catholic boy from Orlando move to Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics were? I'm kidding. If you know Utah, you know there's not a Catholic in the state compared Mm -hmm. to the dominant religion here. So I moved out here 29 years ago at the invitation of the the, uh, recently passed Dr. Stephen Covey. Spent nearly 30 years in his renowned leadership development firm. My wife Stephanie and I are raising three young boys, 8, 11, and 13. And In a tough world trying to make them into gentlemen and so that's our primary mission in life we love salt lake city four distinct seasons no humidity compared to orlando florida it's a great international airport and we've been very blessed with uh people in our lives to help shepherd these boys uh educationally and uh emotionally and socially so that's our key our key life goal was to get these boys launched well
1: Fantastic, and 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 what's the what's the harder and more noble work? Bringing up your three boys, or uh, working with your working with your clients?
2: Oh, the boys! These boys are <laughs> kicking my ass every day. I mean, keeping these boys—you know—it's it's learning, right? Is how much freedom to give them versus how much, how many parameters each one is so different. The oldest one, who's thirteen, is sort of classic oldest child likes rules, likes. Uh, uh, at a boys, the middle one could care less. The youngest one's a wild card. So no, no, no. Clients are, cause you can fire clients. I'm 55, so I don't have to work with anybody. I don't want to anymore, uh, but you can't fire your boys. So Absolutely. no. You know, boys are I'm, infinitely harder.
1: Fantastic. I'm and, and, I, and
2: I'm not, I'll tell you, Chris, I'm not a natural parent. I mean, I never wanted to be a parent. Parenting is not my mission in life. My boys know this, we talk about it. I was single till I was 41. And so for me, I was a bit of a reluctant parent. Now I am super committed to it because I have a a commitment. But parenting was never my calling. I don't enjoy it most days. I'm very comfortable saying that. And our boys and I have appropriately sort of funny conversations around that. And they know it and use that to their full benefit. Trust me.
1: (laughs) I (laughs) just wait a few years time, you won't be able to find a beer in the house.
2: Well, that's more of a socially... I think I think Brits are more responsible with that than Americans are. So uh, uh, I'll be watching that one closely.
1: <laughs> so you were brought up in, in Central Florida. So how, how did your early years, how did they, your upbringing, how did they shape who you are today?
2: You know what? What a profound question. As I age, I realize how fortunate I was to be raised um, in an upper middle class family in the 70s. My mother was a full-time stay-at-home mom to my brother and I. My father worked, you know, a classic kind of nine to five for 40 years at a defense contractor, Lockheed Martin, you know, a military uh, weapons contractor. We went to public school. We went to bed at 8.30. We had everything we needed, nothing we wanted, but everything it was a very stable life. My, both my parents were raised in very unstable lives. My dad's father passed when he was 10 years old of cancer. My dad's twin brother died of polio. My mother's parents were alcoholics and one of them took their life. So I think as a result of that, my parents swung the pendulum really far from instability over to stability. Mm. As I look back, there wasn't a lot of joy or love or fun or happiness in our home. But there was a tremendous amount of security and safety. There was no instability. There was love. It's just it was I think they were so frightened of what they were raised in. As so I look back and I'm trying to balance it out, right? Stability, but lots of hugging and touching and safety, but lots of fun and joy. And so my father has passed, my mother is still alive. They did a great job raising us. My wife was raised in a similarly um, stable life. So we're just trying to raise these boys in a safe, but real environment as possible. And they're doing really well. I'm actually proud that they're doing better than I give my wife and I credit for
1: right that's good that's good to hear certainly over, over here where i came from you know my my family and in the background had quite a quite a tough life and uh they worked some of them worked on the farm and in the steelworks and uh we were we were brought up in um in, in a similar sort of environment really um it was uh it was one where we were kind of very supported and loved but to quite you know controlled and quite managed uh through yeah, yeah. yeah very similar really
2: And i, I look back now and actually, as much as I did not like my parents for how strict and hard they were, I mean, they shepherded me clean through alcohol and drugs and tobacco. They shepherded me clean through pornography and, you know, uh, poor character. And I think them keeping me busy, we obviously were, were a religious family. We went to church mass on Sundays. My mother was a Methodist. My father was a Catholic. So we had a dual faith family that I think helped me to appreciate the legitimacy of other people's you know version of of religiosity or spirituality or just decision not to so i look back and i probably should be more gentle on my parents than i have
1: yeah yeah well then it becomes it becomes your turn doesn't it and then you it does
2: hopefully my boys will say the same to my wife
1: and i someday (laughs) 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 so you um you worked for disney um for four years yes and, and uh you said you didn't um didn't fit Disney. And then, um, so what's uh, what then, why was that? And uh, why did Franklin Covey just feel like, uh, I imagine like a, a warm glove, really? It seemed like you'd fit it in and uh, were there, been there for a long time. You know, I
2: was, you know, my, I, I think part of my imprinting, my inculcation from my father, my mother, the stability. My dad worked at a company for 35 years. That's That was normal 30 years ago, right? So Disney was a great opportunity. I actually worked for the Disney Development Company that's the real estate arm of the Walt Disney Company. So Disney Development Company built the hotels, the theme parks, the cruise ships, and they turned them over to the Walt Disney Company to run. I worked for the real estate company that built a town, literally a city in Central Florida known as Celebration Florida. Thousands of homes, apartments, communities, and it was an amazing opportunity, hometown company. I never really wanted to work for Disney. It wasn't a goal of mine, but a great brand, and I learned a ton there culturally the wrong fit, but I had an amazing run and I'm still very cordial with those who released me. Who cares, right? I mean, the worst day of your life is getting fired. The best day of your life is the next day when you realize what a gift they gave me, right? I wasn't happy there. It wasn't right for me. And so I was 26 when they released me. All good. And it was actually the the Stephen Covey Company, before it became Franklin Covey, Dr. Covey, the seminal leadership author and authority, had a company called the Covey Leadership Center, small private boutique consulting company. They hired me, moved me out to Utah. And I literally spent 25 years moving from the front line to the C-suite. They have to understand, I was not like others. We had the same race, white, but I was Catholic. And this is a Mormon state 28 years ago. Mm. And so for me to move from, you know, a sales contributor to a sales manager, to a sales director, to a managing director, to a general manager, to vice president, to executive vice president, chief marketing officer. I had nine separate careers in 25 years. Every three years, I disrupted myself and kept moving up the company. And then I served as the CMO for a decade. That's three times the national average for a global public company. It was an amazing run. I retired three years ago in good standing. I still host two podcasts for them. I'm a retained ambassador for the company. And so I'm especially proud that I left a public company in good standing, launched my own thought leadership. But today at one o'clock, I'm going to the chairman of the board's house for a huge pool party with his executive team. I don't work there anymore. I'm an ambassador for them, but they've invited me back to their once a year pool party. And I'm proud of those relationships that are still intact.
1: fantastic. And you must've learned an awful lot around self-development and you know, ed- education. I mean, it must be an amazing place to be be educated.
2: It was. I, I learned that I probably shouldn't be a leader of people. <laughs> I mean, you know, leadership is tough. Not everyone should lead people. Not everybody should be an airline pilot. Not everyone should be an anesthesiologist, and not everyone should lead people. And so I learned a tremendous amount about my self-regulation, my maturity level, my ability to make and keep commitments, what it means to be trusted by others. I mean, just a transformational journey for me. I probably stayed a little longer than I should have. They probably agree, but all things are great and we're very good friends. And I had, I think, an amazing impact on me from their mentorship. And I also made that company multiple hundreds of millions of dollars and changed hopefully millions of lives through their content. Win win, as Dr. Covey would say.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. Um, I was—I uh, don't know how many times a week I mentioned "seek first to understand before being understood," but uh, that's um... yeah. I
2: still haven't mastered that one, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Covey would say, of all the seven habits, habit five—the listening habit—was by far his most difficult. I think most people would relate to that.
1: Yeah. Well, particularly if you're a communicator and you enjoy enjoy your voice. no comment sir (laughs) so so what um made you write this latest book the ultimate guide to great mentoring
2: so this is my sixth book most of my books are congealed around leadership culture marketing mentorship i had written two books for harper collins called master mentors where, as you mentioned, I'm privileged now to host what is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. comes out twice weekly, very similar to yours. I have the honor of interviewing great thought leaders, business titans, celebrities, people that have survived tragedies. And I wrote a series of books called Master Mentors, where, with the permission of guests, I highlight 30 transformational insights each year from 30 of my favorite guests. There'll be 10 books in that volume. Master Mentors, Volume 1, and Volume 2 are out. Well, Harper Collins came to me and said, Scott, would you like to write a book about mentorship? There isn't one in the space that we think is um, current. I thought about it. It actually wasn't on my, my book landscape. I had other books that I wanted to write, and I am writing, but I said, you know what? I would, because I have been the recipient of amazing mentorship in my career. It's why I am where I am in life. Other people believing in me, honestly, more than I believe in myself at most points. And I've also mentored dozens of people. So... I decided to write a super practical book, like uber practical. This is not good to great. This is not built to last. This is not anything from Drucker. This is say this, don't say this. Do this, don't do this. Take this leadership skill and calibrate it down because what makes you a great leader won't always make you a great mentor. So I kind of ratchet it down and it just launched this week. And it's been phenomenally well received, but it really was the invitation of the publisher for me to write it. Every author's dream to have a publisher approach you and say, "Hey, do you want to write this book?" That's how it happened.
1: Yeah, fantastic. So, uh, and you're right. Through your your radio show, you do get access to amazing people, don't you? And you yes. learn from them and...
2: A huge gift. And a lot of the content in this book, you know, the book is really highlights thirteen roles that mentors play, or don't play, or could play. Or should it play? And much of the content in the book has been drawn from the 300 plus interviews in the podcast that I've absorbed from from remarkable people that have mentored me intentionally or unintentionally through yeah. this podcast.
1: Yeah. That's, that sometimes happens, isn't it? So you, you uh, People, people, when you, uh, you, you give them a gift of being on your show, they sometimes will turn the table on you and help you.
2: All the uh, time. That's... All the time. And in the book, I've really redefined that mentors don't have to be the vice president on the sixth floor in the C-suite. By all means, take advantage of that. But sometimes mentors are people you haven't even met before. You've read their books. You've been to their conferences or their podcasts. So I really encourage people to redefine how mentors can play a role in their life, whether they've met them or even not.
1: Yeah, yeah. It just does come to mind. I remember interviewing many years ago a um, gentleman, Marshall Thurber, if you know. Familiar I do he, he um um Marshall is a is a lawyer he was Tony Robbins um sort of co-advisor. I just love
2: the way you say that with that beautiful British accent Marshall Thurber it sounds Thurber. so sophisticated
1: his son's I think Rawson Thurber the, the movie does all lots of the Hollywood Blockbuster uh, movies but uh what he um clearly a very successful man I remember at the end of the interview he spent about half an hour just asking me questions and I felt really really special. Uh, um and i was amazed you know, he was investing all of his time in me does his events around the world and various things he's investing all this time in me and i asked him what was the secret to his success and he said it's this chris he said be more interested than yes. interesting which yeah. um, i think comes from dale carnegie i think i first yeah. read that
2: yeah i've also heard jim collins repeat that on stage also yeah
1: right so we're going to go to commercial break now and after the commercial break uh, i'd like us to you know, look at the difference between mentoring and coaching and but then let's have a look at some of these 13 roles. Uh, let's explore what some of these are and to give us an indication of uh, of where Scott's thinking is when it comes to great mentoring and maybe how you can then start to, to apply some of these, uh, these methodologies to yourself. So we'll be back again with you in just a couple of minutes. <laughs>
2: Say It Skillfully is my radio show about being who you are and saying what you think needs to be said. This is your host, Molly Chang. I'll help you find the right words to tackle any challenging conversation you've been avoiding. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. You'll learn how to achieve success on your terms and be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in your life. Check out SayItSkillfully.com practical resources, including my 90-second videos, real-life examples showing you how to speak up skillfully. I invite you to call in with your questions. Join me live every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. And no, I'm cheering for you.
0: tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Scott Jeffrey Miller, and we're talking about, about mentoring. And Scott, I wonder if you could just share with us from your perspective, Um, people people obviously mentor, and they also coach. What for you is the distinction?
2: I think it's probably subtle, which is typically people who are coaching, they're often doing this for a living, it's a business. They're trained, they have a methodology, they usually have secured a coaching certification from some credentialized institution. They take it quite seriously. Mentorship is similar in terms of desire, intention, but it usually is done pro bono. It's usually volunteer, right? It's an after contribution. Mentorship usually is something done philanthropically. Oftentimes you're invited in your organization to be a mentor. It's a add on to your day job. And so I think the outcome is similar, but I would argue that most coaches have a formalized process, a pedagogy, a methodology they follow. It's a business for them. And mentors are likely doing something similar, but they're usually not trained. When when has someone gone to a mentorship class? I mean, I have a certification program at my great mentorship.com website, but it's easy. It's light. It's not Six Sigma-esque, right? It's very light. And so I think they have similar intentions, but different motivations. Mm. By the way, that's not to diminish coaches. I mean, I think coaches and executive coaching is a vital way to... Be a transition figure in someone's life but it's usually a business which is just fine
1: yeah and do you think sometimes with the with the mentoring too it may be maybe somebody who's been very experienced you you can get you know people who are young young who have learned to ask great questions and but with a mentor sometimes there's perhaps more more direct feedback as well and and ideas from their experience maybe to help you not make the same kind of mistakes that they made perhaps
2: you know, I think it's situational, right? Circumstantial. I think to your point, the biggest challenge that mentors find themselves in, and most of us will deny this, but it's very true is kind of living vicariously through your mentee. Well, if I were you, I would do this. And it's kind of the number one rule you cannot break as a mentor. You're not your mentee. You don't have their passions, their fears. They don't have your education, maturity, life experience. And so, As a mentor, your job is really to validate and ignite the passions and the goals of your mentee. That might be learning from your mistakes. It might be learning from your lessons, but your job is to not try to right the wrongs of your past through your mentee, like parenting. Many of us try to live vicariously through our children. It's tempting, but you could say, let's pretend for a moment that I'm mentoring Chris. I'm quite certain it would be the other way around. But let's just say Chris is my mentee and I'm the mentor. I might say, so Chris, you've presented me with a couple of options. You know, you are interested in becoming a chiropractor or a florist. These are radically different things. Let's unpack these and really figure out where your passions are. And let's talk about why. And let's see if, if in many of my life mistakes or lessons, there might be some insights that could apply to yours. It's really cautious that you don't try to prescribe your route to how you would do it. One of the roles, one of the 13 roles, Chris, is the visionary. And I think most of us think as visionary, as a competency, right? Thinking big and bold and outrageous and thinking larger than maybe your mentee might be able to envision. And yes, that's great. But in the book, I talk about it can be dangerous. One of my biggest skill sets as a former chief marketing officer and as a author and speaker and entrepreneur is I kind of have boundless energy as your audience can listen to right now and a lot of creativity but that also can actually like all strengths when overplayed become a weakness because I might say to Chris well Chris well what if you did this and what if you did that and what about this and you can actually crush someone with too big of a spirit. I'm notorious for saying, wait, you live in Miami? Oh, come to Salt Lake City, I'll have you skiing in two hours, not a problem. (laughs) Oh, wait, you've never spoken on a stage? Oh, give me two hours and you can speak to 9,000 people. I'm notorious for setting people up for success and failure because Mm -hmm. my vision for what they can do is really a vision for what I can do. You've got to be thoughtful around the role you play with each of the mentees in your care,
1: make that makes a huge amounts of sense. And, and so, so you identify thirteen roles. You mentioned one there, the visionary. So, how do this thirteen that you have identified? How does somebody utilize this book? Do they do they um, read it through? Do they dip into one and practice it? And does it depend upon what their personal style is? Which one they they use?
2: Yes to all of that. So here's what I would say. I originally had 15 roles and the editor at the publishing house passed out and said, no, (laughs) no. Hey, Scott, have you ever heard of a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? (laughs) Yeah, I sold 50 million copies of it. And so, you know, the magic rule is seven. So I made with great sacrifice, Chris, I got rid of two and had 13 roles still to my editor's horror. But you're not going to play all of these roles. You're going to, you're going to, You're going to learn, yeah, I've got that role down, or that makes sense, but let me work on this role. So it's kind of a start anywhere, go everywhere kind of book. You can skim it. Each of the chapters follows the exact same format. I like to make my books easy for my readers to consume. You open it, each chapter has the goal of that role. What is the upside to your mentee when performed right? What is the downside when you abdicate that role? And then what are the skills? that come about with perfecting that role. Now, no one is gonna master all 13 roles, nor should you. You might choose to, depending upon the circumstance your mentee is in, and their sophistication, their education, how long your mentorship is, you might choose just to employ two or three of these roles. But the book is really about gaining an awareness of when to employ the role and when not. And by the way, the order doesn't matter. Number seven is number seven for no reason. Number nine is number nine for no reason. But really, it's just about understanding when and where you might dip into each of these roles, depending upon what your own style is and what your mentor needs from you.
1: So are these are a bit like a club in the golf bag if you play golf. That's exactly.
2: I love that. Look at you. I love. That's exactly right. It's right. Yeah, do I need a putter or do I need an iron based on the difficulty of this whole, it's exactly right. Hmm. I love that. I love that. Hmm. What a great, can I quote you on that? Yeah. Like literally, you. I think it's a great, it's exactly, it's the 13 are just like the clubs in your bag.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. I, I, can... I,
2: wrote, I wrote this book for leaders because I think most mentors are probably also leaders and companies and organizations and not all the skills that you have perfected, if you will, or growing in your leadership role, translate over into mentorship. So a lot of these roles are just about calibrating up or down how you ask questions, how you listen, how you validate, how you connect, how you reveal. The book really is a guide to building the self-awareness in a mentor so that they know what it's like to be on the receiving end of mentorship from them
1: like i like it so my mind is going now to you walking around with a uh, coaching someone with a bag of golf clubs and they've got v you know little cover on the top one says v for vision <laughs> i'm saying i'm saying you're gonna see
2: you're gonna see that quote on my instagram in about 45 minutes watch out for you
1: <laughs> i like i like it So, t- so tell us a bit more about some of the roles then
2: let me give you a quick run through. Can I take 30 Wait, seconds? No, um, yeah. Rule number one, the revealer. Number two, the boundary setter. Super important. Number three, the absorber. Four, the questioner. Five, the challenger. Six, the validator. My favorite role in the book. Seven is the navigator. Eight, the visionary. We talked about that. Nine, the flagger. Ten, the the distiller, 11, the activator, 12, the connector, and 13, the closer. Now, 13 is a reason for a reason, right? The closer. And one is a reason it's opening the revealing. Like you're a paleontologist, you're an archaeologist. Your job is to uncover so that the mentee can discover their skills, their fears, their goals, their passions. But other than that, 2 through 12 could really all be kind of interchangeably i generally think most mentors abdicate role number 2 the boundary setter and i think they underestimate the value of role number 6 the validator
1: Excellent. well let's let's then talk about boundary setter then so, so the revealer the revealer is that asking questions to try and help people understand
2: well that's yeah yes i mean that's really number 4 the questioner but the revealer is just a, you're just listening you're thinking you're hearing, you're feeling, you're understanding the clarity your mentee has or lacks around what they want to accomplish. I mean, that's just it, right? The role of a mentor is to help your mentee accomplish their goal. They may know it. They may think they know it. They may evolve through your maturity and your wisdom. They may come and say, I have no idea. I think I want to be a vice president in this company. Or I think I might want to make croissants. I'm not sure. Help me out. Yeah. The boundary setter is number two because it's so important for mentors to establish what our parents taught us, right? Good fences make good neighbors. Mm. And so I think it requires us to sometimes, Chris, move outside of our comfort zone and discuss the undiscussables. Can I role play with you for a moment? Sure. Again, let's assume that Chris is the mentee and I'm the mentor. Now, I might discuss this in our first mentoring session. I find that in organizations, most companies now have a mentoring program because they want to recruit their new members. They want to retain their high potentials. They want to make sure that leaders have a way to give back. But here's how it might go. Let's just say we're going to have nine mentoring sessions. I made that number up arbitrarily. Chris, so excited to go on this mentor journey with you. No doubt I'm going to learn from you, and I'm sure hopeful that you're going to learn from me. I know today is our first session. We have a lot of things to talk about. But I want to have an uncomfortable conversation for about three minutes. And then, Chris, we'll go back to being comfortable. But let's have an awkward conversation because I think it's important that we set some boundaries for each other. No doubt, Chris, you may have some boundaries for me as the mentor and i'd love to hear those but i'd also like to share some of mine with you first chris it's important you know as your mentor i will not be playing the role of champion ally promoter that's not my role my role is to be your mentor not your advocate your champion or your ally that's for someone else to do secondly chris i'm not a mental health counselor i'm not a therapist i'm a husband and a and a a father but i'm not a mental health counselor so Any questions in that realm, I'm just not qualified to handle. And finally, Chris, I'm not an investor, I'm not a banker, and I'm not a connector. So I'm going to ask that you not ever put me in the uncomfortable position of asking you to fund a business, to make a connection to my network. I I guard those with great care. I would hate to have you or I embarrassed by me having to say no. Pretty much that's it. I'm going to ask that you always come on time that you have great preparation, that you value my time, I'll value yours. And beyond that, Chris, I'm going to guess you may have some boundaries for me too. Now, let me stop there.
1: Mm, What I've done
2: is I've made it very clear what I'm not willing Mm. to do, so don't ask me. Yeah. But now I've set those fences pretty high. But now I'm going to sit back and watch you over the next eight weeks or eight months. And if all of a sudden, Chris is on time, engaged, done his preparation work, Delivered on his commitments. I might choose to change my mind. Six weeks from now, I might say, this guy is the bomb. Of course, I'm going to make him connections to my network. But you have to earn your way into it. So I set pretty high boundaries early on. And then I decide, based on your behavior, whether or not I choose to strengthen them, maintain them, or even lessen them. And I think that helps to prevent a lot of conflict and anxiety in this relationship. Mentors need to set boundaries up front. Because oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the mentee is more junior, not always, but often, less experienced, maybe even a little naive. And they may ask some questions that they think are reasonable, but you know, culturally or politically, they're not. And so if you want to prevent those from happening, set those boundaries up front and then decide should you choose to lessen them over time.
1: I, I love that. It was gold dust. I love love the way you've set set the framework. You've set the rules. Um, You've made it unambiguous, really. It's clear, isn't it?
2: And that does require people to sometimes be a little more courageous than they might naturally be. Like for my wife, my wife, it would be very difficult for her to have that conversation up front. She tends to be a peacemaker. She likes to avoid conflict. She's lovely. She's brilliant. She's smart. She's amazing. But that would be an uncomfortable conversation for her. It's extremely comfortable, me telling you what I won't and will do. Now, some people listening might think that was harsh. Well, Scott, shouldn't by now you be making connections to everybody? I'm a connector. I have a massive network of people that can help others, but you have to earn your way into it. You have to demonstrate that you are trustworthy. You have high character, high competence, that you make and keep commitments for me to take a risk and introduce you to my British friend, Chris Cooper. Because this is my reputation as much or more than it's yours. And so I can't afford to have someone else let me down. And Chris call me and say, hey, Scott, that, that guy you sent me, he's kind of a bit of a flake. Tell me what I don't see. I can't afford that because my reputation with Chris is my most treasured asset. And I guard it very jealously.
1: And that—that that is uh, so important for someone like you and, and for myself too. It we, is. We... We know a lot of people, and, and we have a reputation with those people. And I, I often think that guests don't always appreciate that; they don't realize that. People
2: ask me all day long, "Can you introduce me to Brene Brown or Seth Godin or Tony Robbins?" And I'm thinking, "Yes," but I say no, depending upon you know our relationship and their brand and how well I know them. Am I going to introduce Chris Cooper to Seth Godin? Of course I'm going to, because I've watched Chris and I know your career, but you know, someone in college, someone just in the company as a junior person, you got to earn your way into that. Hmm. And now you'll notice that role number 12 is in fact called the connector. So I think that a role mentors can play is a connector, a pollinator, a networker. I just argue you should be very careful about it because at the end of the day, it's more your reputation than it is that of your mentee.
1: Fantastic. Well, you're obviously going to be able to go and buy this book. um, But after the break, um, I'd like us to talk about, I'd like to talk about The Validator, actually. That was one I highlighted as being particularly important in this um, this list. So, um, hey, if you've enjoyed what you've just heard, I certainly have, um, and I picked up something, uh, um, some gold dust from that um, first section, that's looking at the 13 roles. Uh, Do join us after the break. It's going to be good. Back again with you in just a couple of minutes.
2: are you a business owner 1099 contractor part-time employee or volunteer who needs group health coverage you can actually afford do you know a nonprofit who would benefit from unlimited zero cost funding how about cost reduction school safety mental health wellness and more all these and more are fair game on finding certainty if you want more certainty in your own life you are not alone join us each friday at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern on the voice america business channel Find your own brand of certainty and realize your personal American dream with Finding Certainty, hosted by Patrick Lang. Let's unwrap the certainty experience together.
0: tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Scott Jeffrey Miller, and we're talking about uh, mentoring and becoming a great mentor. And Scott, before the break, you You shared with us uh, a brilliant segment on on, um, setting boundaries uh, and and, uh, good fences make good neighbors. I love that. I shall always remember that. And one that, as you went through the list of 13 that you highlighted to us and put in the spotlight was the validator. It's clearly an important one. Tell us a little bit about the validator.
2: I'm actually kind of becoming a bit emotional thinking about it. I just turned 55 a week ago and I don't know why. For 50, turning 50 meant nothing to me, but turning 55 has made me much more reflective. My father passed a year ago. My mother is in the crescendo of her life at 81 and has health problems. So I'm just, I'm kind of, you know, doing a bit of a narration of my life of the ups and the downs. And I'm really passionate about this role because it's been performed on me. I'd like to share two stories around how disproportionately vital this role is for anyone who is mentoring others. Really, at the end of the day, Chris, when you're a mentor, you have the opportunity to be a transition figure in someone's life. life. Dr. Covey popularized this idea of all of us have had transition figures in our life. Might've been a headmaster, a coach, a teacher, a rabbi, an imam, a neighbor, a grandfather. Could have been a previous leader that we didn't like, but we look back and they were a transition figure. You may not know this about me, but I am a lifelong stutterer. I have a debilitating speech impediment. Uh, So strong that I've had speech therapy and speech pathology lessons my entire life. There are about 35 words I cannot say in public. In the cold weather, it is quadrupled. about 120 words, I cannot say. I have a debilitating stutter that I've worked very hard on overcoming. For those who are stutterers or who know a stutterer, you know that there's lots of different reasons why people stutter. Neurologically, psychologically, sociologically, physiologically. I have been able to overcome my stutter with Herculean effort. Some have not. But the reason I mention that is because As you indicated earlier, I was born in Orlando, Florida, a tourist community. And when I was about 18 years old, I was working in a bakery, a local bakery. And a Middle East tourist walked in and ordered a croissant and a cup of coffee. And she asked me for directions. Now, it was like, I think, to a hair salon, like a hair boutique, about a mile away. So I'm giving her her croissant and her cup of coffee. And I said basically something like, well... Travel down this road, you know, two miles, and turn right, and turn left, and what? Well, I gave her some instructions. I'm a stutterer, and this woman turned to me. She was Israeli. I remember. She turned to me and she said, "Now, this was almost 38 years ago." She turned to me and said, "You are a remarkable communicator. You have a great command of your language. That is going to take you far in life." End quote. And she walked out. Now, I'm an 18-year-old kid. I have no idea what I'm going to do in life. I'm barely passing my first college course. I'm a stutterer. And this woman told me I was a powerful communicator. I've told this story before, but I'm getting emotional thinking about it. Right. And I went on to become the host of an influential podcast. I had a radio program on iHeartRadio. I speak for a living And this woman accidentally took that validation and I put it in my backpack metaphorically and I carried it around for me for years. I had a podcast interview that went viral on YouTube a few months ago, 150,000 views and listens and comments in like 24 hours. And the vitriol in the comments on YouTube, I mean, my, my oldest son and I sat in a car one day and got a milkshake and just laughed ourselves silly, reading all of the hate about you know I don't deserve a podcast. I slaughter the language. I can't put two sentences together. I miss I'm a stutterer. People, the fact that I even have a podcast is a miracle. Fast forward thirty years, I'm the chief marketing officer of this company, Franklin Covey, the world's most trusted leadership firm. The chief financial officer, you know, kind of the sage, older guy in his 60s, super trustworthy. We're peers in title. We're not peers in, in, uh, in contribution and in wisdom, right? His name is Steve. He walked up to me one day. We're peers on paper. We're not peers in life. He walked up to me and said, Scott, you are a creative genius. And he walked away. Now, I don't say that to brag at all. My point in telling those stories is as a mentor, when you are in the role of validator, you have a chance to change someone's self-esteem, their self-confidence. You have a chance to name what is their native genius that they may not know. And when you're in the role of the validator, this is judicious, this is cautious, this is rare. This is scarce. This is consequential. You don't validate someone for showing up on time. You don't validate someone for taking good notes. You say something like this. Chris, can we stop for a moment? I want to take a break on this conversation, and I don't want you to negate this or explain it away. I want you to own it. Chris, I've noticed something in you that I think is a key differentiator. You have a genius that I want to name very carefully, and I want to talk about it for a few minutes to determine why you do this. Do you know that you have this and how you might ignite this as a parent, as a coach, as an entrepreneur, as a student, as a friend, whatever role you play, whatever that is. It might be that Chris has a way of reducing his thoughts to genius writing. Maybe he's a great synthesizer. Maybe he gets to the root cause. Maybe, whatever it is, this is the role that can consequentially name and change someone's trajectory in life. Everyone wants to be heard. Everyone wants to feel valued. But I would argue that you should do this maybe once or twice in the course of your mentorship. I do this with my oldest son. I will occasionally say, by the way, his name is Thatcher, named after my hero, Margaret Thatcher. Hmm. I hope your listeners find that politically inconsequential, but I'm a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher, including her faults and including her genius. I'll say to Thatcher, Thatcher, you have a power skill. He's 13. You can walk into a room and you know who's feeling sad who's feeling lonely, who's feeling shy, and you have ability to walk up to them and make them feel great. This is a superpower, son. This is gonna serve you so well in life. And my son now will tell people, I have a superpower. My superpower is, and he, he talks about it, and it's so endearing. I kind of belabored that, because I want your listeners, Chris, to think about who in their life validated them, who named their genius. Who took what they might thought was a weakness and named it, and that person then turned it into a strength? And I bet you have several people in your life that have been the validator to you. And whether you are a formal or informal mentor or leader, whether you're a parent or you're not, I know you're a friend. I know you're a partner of some sort. I know you have peers. Don't underestimate the power of carefully validating someone's genius because they will never forget it. And if you do it the right way, with the right words, with the right pauses, they will put that in their backpack and they will metaphorically carry it around with them and pull it out, pull that club out on a day when they're on that tee, on that hole, with that weather, when they need it most because someone has kicked their ass or diminish them or criticize them and they will pull that validation out from you and you might even just save someone's life.
1: Yeah. Wow, and and uh, yeah. Uh, that that can yeah, be yeah, I'm passionate uh, about that. Can be one of the most significant things that anybody ever says to you, couldn't it? That's
2: right. That's right. Like, you like, never know like, what it, it might give someone the confidence to quit their job or 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 leave a relationship or quit a boss. It might even save someone's life with this this pandemic of despair and loneliness and anxiety where people feel like they don't have a contribution to make, but they remember, you know what? Scott told me I was this. I might Scott, I might call Scott and say, I need you to tell me more about that because I can't figure out how that's true. Tell me more about that.
1: Yeah. And and I guess a sort of nuance on that is um, sometimes I find myself with somebody who maybe has a, a strength, but they, they don't use it very often. It's really helpful, isn't it? Like, um, you know, uh, so it could be, could be, if it was you, you Scott, um, you, if you, if you weren't somebody with, uh, you know, a, lots of humor, but you actually said a, a joke, you said something humorous that made me laugh. I might sometimes say something like, um, Hey, when, when you, when you, when you do that, it's absolutely, you're absolutely brilliant. Uh, and then it gets some thinking, thinking in the future, mm, I can be funny. Um, I can be humorous. And maybe that's then something they can develop and work with. And then the mentor
2: could say, let's talk about how that can become a huge strength for you, mm. but also how it could become a weakness. Because if you overplayed that and all you did with crack was crack jokes all the time, no one would take you seriously. So you also could talk about some, some boundaries around how to make sure that, 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 that genius in you is used to your benefit and to the benefit of others as well.
1: Fantastic. Well, we've, um, we've come to the end of the interview now. Uh, and in 30 seconds, it's been great. In 30 seconds, do you have a final message you'd like to leave us with?
2: I'm just so grateful for your abundance. Thank you for shining your spotlight onto me. You're such a great model of having an abundance mentality, Chris. Great interview. I appreciate you letting me talk about my newest book release, The Ultimate Guide to Great Mentorship, 13 Roles to Making a True Impact.
1: Fantastic! And if you want to find out more about Scott J Miller? Go to scott dot com. I took loads from that interview. I hope you did too. Um, some just some great things that validate the boundary setting. Um, and uh, I certainly will want a copy of that book and to work through those thirteen different roles. So, um, once again, thank you to Scott Jeffrey Miller. That has been absolutely brilliant. On next week's show, we have Molly Harvey. Uh, Molly is. Molly's nice, amazing um amazing lady so deep and reflective we're going to talk about cha- uh, make changes not excuses um but really um I would I would join in and listen to that interview Molly has got a real incredible gift when it comes to uh, her intuition uh, and uh, I've known her for a few years now and have always been so impressed by her. and then the following week we've got survive to thrive with paul davis and that's well worth well worth checking out too because paul is an expert on um, dealing with depression and uh, people who are s- uh, suicidal and again a very very intuitive fellow and actually a seventh child of a seventh child of a seventh child so that was a new one for me so we're back with you again um, next week, um, do take care. Do send any questions, comments to Chris at ChrisCooper.co.uk. Do check us out and join us on social media. Let us know if you do um, where you've got my name from, because so many people just ask to connect, and if I don't know why, I generally don't tend to connect with them. Okay. Um, so uh, do please do that. And once again, Jeff Scott Jeffrey Miller, you've been amazing. Take care, everybody. Go thank you. away. Thank you, have a great, um, a great week, everybody. And have a think about how you can be a great mentor, and uh, alternatively, uh, find someone to support you in your development. Take care.
0: We thank you for listening to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show.